We'll just talk. All right. Um, Okay, so um, I hope you're reading repetition. It's really um, strange, but really great. Uh, you, it's not hard to complain about it, but the point would not be all the things that are wrong with it, which part of what it, part of um, the point of the things that are wrong with it is that Kierkegaard knows those things are wrong with it. Um, Kierkegaard, just so you know, Kierkegaard um, always, I believe without exception, published um, over pseudonyms. He never published um, over his own name. And he had lots of different pseudonyms, and um, his pseudonymous um, um, avatars um, frequently attacked each other um, for being wrong about everything. And um, part of Kierkegaard's point was that there um, isn't a way of being right. There's just a way of coping. Um, with being wrong. So, for example, um, near the beginning of repetition, he attacks a contemporary author who says that recollection is the only happiness in life. And when do you know who that author is? Kierkegaard. Okay. Kierkegaard under a different name. Um, on a book published the same day. He published three books on one, in one day. And you guys, you need extensions on your papers? Um, he published an insane number of books. He published like two or three books a year, frequently on the same day. Um, and um, he attacked each, each of his different authors attacks the other authors for being um, totally wrong about everything. And um, to be wrong in a Kierkegaardian way is a great aspiration for all of us. You want to be wrong that way. So um, when he is attacking the author who talks about how wonderful recollection is and how that's the only happiness in life, and he says you couldn't possibly say anything more wrong-headed than that, um, the author he's attacking is himself. Um, and he's not taking it back. Um, what he's trying to do is be provocative in every way possible. As Emerson um, said, or at roughly the same time, um, uh, the best thing you can get from another soul is provocation. Um, being provoked is the point. And repetition, in a way, the very idea of repetition, um, in some ways for Kierkegaard, is um, a, a synonym for provocation. Um, the idea of repetition is that nothing is settled, um, that you have to do it again, um, that if you think things are settled, you're provoked into thinking um, otherwise, thinking differently. Um, OK, I, what I thought we'd do today is start out by talking about source code and whether it makes sense. Um, obviously, it makes sense as much as any movie makes sense. That's not what I mean. It's not like, wait a second, I don't get it. Why would an Illinois license look like that? Um, not that kind of sense making. Um, but whether it makes sense as a coherent story. Um, but the idea of a coherent story, the idea of um, whether something makes sense or not, um, is an idea that is going to come up in the reading for next week. So the reading this, uh, this week and next week, I hope you're not finding too onerous. Uh, repetition, as I say, is better read quickly than slowly, because if you read it slowly, um, if you read it as slowly as it needs to be read, it will take you many, many months. Um, and therefore, it's um, better to just get a um, 
quick sense of its provocativeness, um, and sometime later in your life you will um, remember to read it slowly, and that will be a good thing. Um, I guess one way of saying what's hard about Kierkegaard is that if you read as quickly as he wrote, you're, all, you're going to be reading too quickly. Um, you have to read more slowly than he wrote what he wrote, and that will take a long time because he wrote a lot. Um, but um, the other reading for next week, which I will put in the um, Dropbox file, I'm not giving you individual links anymore. You, just, you have the link to the file for the class, so just look for this. Um, in that file is um, D.K. Lewis's essay on um, truth in fiction. And um, you will see its relevance when you read it, but I want to give you a little bit of a background um, of what Lewis's background thinking um, and outrageous background claim um, that truth in fiction is part of. Um, what that um, outrageous background claim is. So Lewis is the great um, metaphysician, I guess you would call him, of um, possible worlds, what are called possible worlds. And for Lewis, um, a possible world is kind of what it is in lots of different um, philosophical discussions. The idea of possible worlds goes back at least as far as Leibniz. Um, one way of talking about possible worlds is to say that necessary truths are truths that are true in all possible worlds. So no matter how the world is constituted, no matter um, what the world is like, if something is necessarily true, it's true in all those worlds. So what's a necessary truth? It's, you can argue about what necessary truths are, but um, we can take as an example um, without fussing about it. Once you start fussing, whole new worlds open up. But without fussing about um, this as an example, 2 plus 2 equals 4 seems to be true in all possible worlds. Um, if you wanted to fuss, the first thing you would say is, well, any world that contains four items. Um, that would be um, a minimum for that possible world. But you know what I'm saying, that, if, that 2 plus 2 is 4 is true in all possible worlds and is therefore a necessary truth. 2 plus 2 equals 5 is true in no possible world and therefore is um, false a priori. So things that are true in all possible worlds are true um, no matter what else is a fact about the world. This isn't a fact like the fact that there's what they call coffee here today. How is it, by the way? Would you call it, co would you call it coffee? No, okay. Well, it's a fact that there's stuff here today that wasn't here on um, Tuesday, um, and there are pop it, it, it could have been otherwise. There's nothing about reality that makes it the case that there had to have been coffee here today and that that would be true in all possible worlds. Um, necessary truths, and sometimes called analytic truths, again, these are all arguable and distinguishable concepts, but now we're going to lump rather than split. Necessary truths, um, analytic truths, that is, things that are true by inspection, um, a priori truths, all of those can be called true in all possible worlds. And then there are things that are false in all possible worlds. Um, and then there are things that could be true, 
but um, don't have to be necessarily true. So these are called the words like um, necessary or, or um, forms of description, which use words like necessary, possible, and actual. Um, those are called different modes, because they're grammatical modes also, um, different modes of assertion. So if you say, for example, the Democrats could hold the Senate in 2014, the mode that you're saying that in is in the mode of possibility. Um, if you're saying there's no way that the Democrats are not going to lose seats, um, then you're asserting something as necessary. Again, it may not be strictly speaking necessary, but you're but that's the mode of um, discourse that you're using. That you're using, um, it's 100 percent certain that the Democrats will lose seats. Um, then you're using a different mode. It has to happen. It must happen. Um, or um, the reverse of necessary truths are impossibilities. It will be impossible for the Democrats to gain seats, is or to hold their current. Um, the, their current number of seats is just the flip side of it is necessary that they lose seats. Um, so impossibility is the flip side of necessity. Um, possibility is the flip side of possibility. And actuality is itself kind of perhaps meets somewhere in the middle. So what Lewis, so the idea of possible worlds is um, a metaphorical idea, you could say, um, because all there is is the world. So what do you mean possible worlds? And the idea is worlds we could imagine. That's what everyone thought possible worlds meant until Lewis came along. And then what Lewis said is if you want to know what makes something true, and we've talked about this in class already, um, talked about it in, when we were talking about MacGuffins. If you want to know what makes something true, you're asking a really, really hard question. What is truth? Said jesting Pilate. Francis Bacon tells us and would not wait for an answer. Um, Jesus says, I come to bring the truth. And Pilate says, what is truth? And then washes his hands and does other bad, then does bad things after washing his hands. He washes his hands of the question. Um, the question, what is truth, is an old philosophical question. Um, for Plato, it's what is the case in the realm of the forms. Um, for others, there are other definitions of truth. But what we could say is that if a sentence is true, this seems like a minimal, um, not the most minimal thing you can say about a sentence, or the, not the most minimal thing you can say about truth, but a pretty reasonably minimal thing you can say about truth. If a sentence is true, what that means is there is something that makes it true. So for a sentence to be true, something makes it true. That is um, hard to get around. Um, what can make it true is that it is saying something true in all possible worlds, like two is two. Um, what can make it true is that I can say there's coffee here today, and the fact that there's coffee here today is what makes that sentence true. Um, there are lots of things that might make the sentence true. If the sentence is something like, um, the Buddha is the void, 
then presumably what's making it true is something like Buddha being is the thing that's actually making it true. But if a sentence is true, there's something that makes it true. Sentences in some way or other, if you can say they're true or false, it means that they are pointing to something that at least that is outside of themselves, at least to the extent that they circuit outside of themselves. That is, if you were to say a sentence like, this sentence is true, um, is that sentence true or not? Um, we don't know. But let's say that sentence is true, then what the sentence is doing is pointing to, a part of the sentence is pointing to the whole sentence. Namely, the phrase, this sentence, is pointing to the whole sentence. Namely, this sentence is true. And that pointing, even to itself, is a kind of circuit outside of itself. Um, when you talk about paradoxes like this sentence is true or this sentence is false, uh, paradoxical sentences like that, um, the question of whether they're true and false is a hard one. But the general idea, and really an uncontroversial idea, unless anyone wants to controvert it, is that if a sentence is true, some, if a sentence is true, then there is something that makes it true. Does anyone doubt that? Can anyone think of a counterexample? Does everyone get that? Does everyone say, wow, that's really cool? Is that like, yeah, so? The best philosophy will strike non-philosophers as yeah, so. Um, but that's the point. Getting to a yeah, so insight about the world is not easy. So is your hand up? No. Yeah. Can't you also prove truth by showing what it's not? Essentially saying, like, disprove everything else, so therefore this is true. Well, except what if you then disprove that as well? True. <laughs> true. True that. Um, so, yeah. So basically, the, the, if something is true, there's something that makes it true. It, that actually comes down to true dat. True is the, what the sentence is, and dat is the thing that makes it true. So this is, you could say, the true dat theory of truth. Yeah. Was your hand up? Know, yeah, this is a little meta. I don't know whether I'm actually... A little meta in this guy? I don't know. Uh, All right. What makes the statement... I never met a meta I didn't like. What makes the statement, if something's true, it needs to indicate that something... Point to something that's true, true? Um, well, the fact that truth seems to be a relationship between sentences and states of affairs, let's say, or sentences and um, things that the sentences point to, refer to, designate, mean... Whatever. Um, so that's a good question. And it's um, a question that, um, in some sense, is a version of the um, critique of logical positivism, which is the critique of logical positivism is that a sentence only has meaning um, if it can be empirically or analytically verified. That's a verification theory of truth. Um, the thing about the um, true dat theory of truth is that um, you're not saying that it's verifiable, and um, there's no claim that it's verifiable. Um, the claim is rather that whether you verify it or not, this is true. And therefore, to take A.J. Ayer's um, famous sentence that he says with some disgust, the absolute is white. And he says, that's nonsense. You can't say of that either that it is true or that it's false. That's fine. That's a way of saying there's, um, there's nothing that would make that true or false. But if someone thinks it is true, um, 
then in claiming that that sentence is true, they're claiming that there is something that makes it true. That's the only claim that they're making. Um, to use an example of Davidson's, um, it's always good to use examples which are not in fact true. Um, but Davidson, who's a very graceful writer, um, says, suppose you say to me, there are a million stars out tonight, and I reply, that's true. Um, then it's clear, Davidson says, that what you've said is only true if what I've said is true, and what I've said is only true if what you've said is true. So if I say that's true to your sentence, there are a million stars out tonight, my sentence would only be true if your sentence is true, namely that there are a million stars out tonight. Your sentence is true if and only if my sentence is true, that is my saying that's true. So it, you're not saying what it is that would make it true. You're just saying there is something that would make it true. And that's a less inflated claim than the idea that you could verify it analytically or empirically, which is the logical positivist idea. Does that, do you accept that? Does that difference make a difference? Yeah, that's OK if it's tautological. Um, I guess but, tautology is a logical proof. Yeah. Um, but it's also the case that it's only that, that to think something is true is only to think that there's something that makes it true. Um, that it, and you can say if that's the same thought, that's fine. It just says something about truth, whereas to um, you know, think, um, I don't know, to, to think um, Gavagai, um, I just made that up, um, isn't necessarily to be thinking anything except that very thing. But here you're thinking about a relation. Um, and when you're thinking about that relation, it doesn't matter whether um, you're correct in thinking about it. it um, at one way of describing this is to say that it denotes an attitude towards a sentence. And the attitude towards that sentence is there is something else, even if it's a different perspective on that very sentence, there is something else that warrants or guarantees, it's not actually warrants, but guarantees um, the truth of that sentence if it's true. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, I was just going to say, a lot of that, uh, what we're saying kind of depends on whether or not you straight up buy the synthetic analytic distinction. So like, a lot of the propositions we're saying, we haven't really categorized them as either synthetic or analytic. Yeah. And if you just, on face, say that none of them are <laughs> synthetic, that like, even something like, you're pretty, is an analytic statement that we could go out there and verify. Like, you a mean a synthetic statement? Analytic is true by inspection. Yeah, exactly. So I'm saying like you're pretty doesn't seem like something we could go verify because it's a subjective value yeah. judgment of me saying you're pretty. And then if somebody like agreed with you, like yeah, I am pretty. Like, yeah. It would be kind of like the stars example. Yeah. But if you look at like Kleinians who say who just don't think that's a thing. Yeah. I guess it, to solve this problem, it's, it becomes easier to solve it when you just say that like there are no synthetic propositions. Yeah. Um. So there, it does become easier to solve it. But what we're doing now is seeming to lump, but actually splitting. Um, but the idea here is just to say what it is in um, what seems necessary to using the word true. So um, what seems necessary to using the word true is to say um, that when I say you're pretty, or the absolute is white, or um, Buddha nature is the void, um, I'm not just producing sounds. 
um, there is something that um, I could um, claim to back it up, even if that claim is, if you saw with my eyes, you would see, or if he saw with my eyes, he would see that you were pretty. Um, it could be as simple as that. Um, but there's something, there is something, um, there's a claim that there's something to back it up. Um, now, the reason I'm saying this, this isn't the, the um, um, take-home for this. Um, this is an introduction to Lewis. Lewis then wants to know what it means to say that it's possible that, um, or it was possible that it would snow here yesterday, or it's possible that it will rain on Friday. What makes that true? So if you use, if you say sentences... Um, which are, which describe possible states of affairs. And if you take the word possible seriously, that is, if you say it's possible that something will happen, um, and if the word possible means something, and if the sentence it's possible that something will happen um, means something, what is the thing that will make that true? What makes a sentence of possibility a true sentence if we say that for a sentence to be true, there's something that makes it true. So Lewis comes up with, um, uh, because thought is cheap, you can come up with an extremely um, large answers, ambitious answers. And Lewis's answer is that possible worlds actually exist. He would not say actually because of the trouble that that word will get you in. Um, but again, um, it's a reasonable um, um, approximation of what he's saying to say that possible worlds actually exist. So in, you know, I might have spilled this coffee, as I frequently do coming in, but I didn't. But that means there is a possible world where I did. Um, so somewhere else, a bunch of your counterparts are sitting hearing a counterpart of mine talking about D.K. Lewis, um, but that counterpart of mine has coffee all over his hands. Um, other than that, things are exactly the same. Um, because if it's possible that I'd spill this coffee, then what makes that true is there is a world where I did spill that coffee. So Lewis's idea, and it's an extravagant idea, um, but it's an idea that he defends extraordinarily well over a series of many, many papers and books against people who are outraged but can't actually figure out what's wrong with what he's saying, nor can they come up with a better um, explanation of the truth of modal sentences. Lewis's <laughs> idea is that anything that's possible is actual in some possible world that any time something is possible, there is a world where it's actual. So this is very easy to dismiss, but not very easy to refute. There are people who have tried to refute it. Um, but it turns out that if you allow yourself to start worrying about these ideas and thinking about these ideas, um, they're not at all easy to refute. Um, Easy to dismiss, not easy to refute. But that, that's Lewis's basic, well, it's not his only basic claim. It's one of his basic claims. Um, and the reason 
to introduce his essay on truth and fiction with this claim of his is that that essay is an essay about fictional worlds. That is, there is a fictional world, as you'll see this is his first and, um, and uh, recurring example, there is a fictional world in which Sherlock Holmes and John Watson live at 221B Baker Street. And then there's our world in which there is no Sherlock Holmes and there is no John Watson. And in fact, if you've gone to Baker Street near uh, Mary LeBone in London, there's no 221B. Um, nevertheless, in um, the writings of Arthur Conan Doyle and many other people and in various movies, um, there are Holmeses, there are Watsons, there are 221B Baker Streets. Now, if you have ever taken an English class with an exam in it, um, you, will have been, you will have had to answer questions like, um, who suggests to Laertes that he um, have a fencing match with Hamlet? And if you write Claudius, you will have gotten that question right. And if you write Ophelia, you will have gotten that question wrong. And what that exam has asked you to do in asking you a question like that is has asked you about a truth in a fictional text, in a fictional play, in a fictional world. Because the answer is in our world, no one ever told Hamlet, or no one ever told Laertes to fence with Hamlet. Um, it just never happened. But in the play Hamlet, that's the right answer. So what makes that answer true in the play, that's a question, that's the question that Lewis is raising of truth in fiction. And as you'll see, the answer about what's true in a fiction is that if something is true in a fiction, it's true in so, then it actually is happening in some possible world in which Hamlet and Laertes and Claudius are interaction, interacting with each other or have interacted with each other. Okay. Wait, I just have a question. Is he saying that by saying something, you're making this world, like you're creating this world? Or is he saying that you're saying something out of... Well, what he's saying, he, he's actually not saying, as um, some interpretations of quantum theory will say, that you're actually creating the world. Um, what he's saying is that if it's true that something is possible, what makes it true is that world already exists. So the fact, any possible sentence you can think of, it's not that by thinking it you're creating the world that that sentence is true. It's that by thinking it, if it's true that the sentence you're thinking of is possible, or that, that it's po what you're thinking of is in fact possible, then um, what you are doing is thinking about a world. It turns out you've suddenly glimpsed or seen or directed your attention to a world that already exists. Um, so you don't have to worry about your thoughts. It would be terrible if you did. Like, you know, oh, to quote Wordsworth, oh, mercy to myself, I cried if Lucy should be dead. Oh, my God, I killed her. Um, you know, and there are movies about that also, Stranger Than Fiction, for example, that is where imaginative people by thinking certain things create fictional worlds where those things happen. Lewis isn't making that claim. Um, he's making the claim that any thought that you have 
you can look at it and see if it's possible or not. Not all, not all things are possible even if you think they are. If I try to think, oh, I'm thinking of a world in which 2 and 2 equals 5, and that is just so great because every time I'm out of money, I take my last four quarters and I pile them up together and I have five. Ah! Oh! Now that's not a possible world. Um, so the fact that I thought it doesn't make it so anywhere. Um, but um, a possible world in which every time it rains, it rains pennies from heaven, um, that is a possible world. And therefore, there is a world in which it is raining pennies from heaven every time it rains. Yeah, great. Reality. Yeah. Um, but what about like fantasy? I mean, you just said pennies from heaven. But yeah. <laughs> so if I wrote a story in which, you know, I don't know, there's a society of unicorns, does that mean that there's a possible world where there's a society of unicorns? Yeah, but not, you didn't cause there to be a society of, uni of right, unicorns. Right, but it's still lumped in, like, even things that aren't, I guess they're. Aren't realistic. Yeah, aren't realistic aren't realistic, yes, in our world. Um, so unless there is a reason, and we, there may be reasons that we don't know that such worlds are impossible. Um, that is, it, there may be something um, that we haven't seen as self-contradictory. You know, there are lots of things in formal systems that turn out to be self-contradictions that we didn't know. Um, but unless there is some reason, even if we don't know what the reason is, that a world of a society of unicorns is impossible, um, all you've done by thinking of such a thing is you've actually um, realized that such a world exists. That is, you can explore unbelievable numbers of universes just by um, daydreaming, because any daydream that you have that's possible According to Lewis, you're actually thinking of not only one world, but a huge number of different worlds where it's real. Why it's a huge number of different worlds um, should be obvious in a second, because um, in the world in which it's raining pennies from heaven, um, in one of those worlds, it might have rained um, 10 to the 14th plus 3 pennies on last Friday, and in another world, it might have rained 10 to the 14th plus 2 pennies. So there have to be that... So there's a, there are two different possible worlds in which it was raining pennies from heaven. Um, lots and lots and lots of worlds in which it rains pennies from heaven. This also goes with um, fears, which are real fears among real computer science geeks, that we might be living in a simulation. Um, in fact, that the odds are extremely high that we're living in a simulation and that we're not living in a real world. We only think we are um, because there are lots more simulations than real worlds. And... Um, <coughs> Given that fact, we have to be really careful what we um, discover about the simulator who might not want us to realize that we're living in a simulation and might reprogram us to stop us. And this, as you see, starts getting us towards source code. Yeah? Um, so is it possible then that any decision you've ever made, or even any minor, minor decision you've ever made, could prove that there's like a possible world where that decision exists? Yeah, where you did the other thing. Yeah, so like yeah. for example, something as small as choosing one flavor of coffee over another, or something like choosing one college over another, or something like that, yeah. that means in that other world it's possible that it exists where you did choose that other flavor or something like that. Yeah, if, if, the, if it was possible that you chose the other flavor, there's a world in which your counterpart did choose the other flavor. 
if it's possible that um, you would have gone to Tufts, there's a world in which your counterpart went to Tufts. Um, so yeah, the answer is yes. For Lewis, um, it seems excessive, but hard to get around. Yeah, Lester. In the past, I've kind of put those two concepts together, but all possible worlds and simulations. Uh, and I've kind of thought, well, if it's possible to simulate something, that means it probably, even if a computer isn't specifically simulating it, yeah. uh, that, then it's still being simulated. It's just there's not this window in, just like 1 plus 1 plus 2 on the calculator, mm -hmm. even if you don't specifically calculate it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, which would be equally true. And even if there was a simulation which would take all the energy in the universe or more to simulate, mm -hmm. if, it were still, if it were possible, yeah. then that could potentially also be happening. Yeah. Uh, and I guess the implication of that is that, well, like, it goes into everything. Like, maybe the simulation is only one person's percep percep perception. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but probably the most important thing is that there would be no good or bad because if it was possible to simulate infinite pain, then yeah. that would be simulated. Or yeah. that would be that would exist somewhere. It's possible to imagine that. Right. All things would be happening. Um, and so no choice would be particularly uh, better or worse than any other choice. It would simply be an um, you could say a URL for a universal, or a UWL, a universal world locator, which would just tell you which world you were in. Okay, so this is the world where um, um, Oswald shoots Khrushchev. Um, it's different from the world in which he shoots Kennedy, um, but he's, he does both. Um, no matter what, he does both. Um, so there's no particular reason to blame him because the fact that it's possible to do it is something that he's always doing. That's one argument you could make. Yeah. So how are the worlds coming about? Because that would mean that, like, since as time goes on, like every day, millions of decisions are made. Like, but there's just continual. Yeah, they're not. They're not forking and branching. So that's the quantum theory idea, and that's what not quite to confuse it with. It's not the case that um, things were going along pretty well and then you decided that you were going to have maple walnut instead of um, ginger pistachio and suddenly, boom, the maple walnut world. But and there the are still technically two different worlds. Yeah, but there always were. There was a you that was born whenever you were born and at some point um, chose maple walnut. So when are those worlds created, though? Because that, like, are they, they're already they're simultaneous. existing for, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. In other words, all possible worlds, all the idea of possible worlds can do is point out to you whenever you see that something is possible. That's just a um, pointer towards a possible world that's been existing parallel to this world for as long as this world's been existing. So it points it out to you. It doesn't, um, doesn't create it. It feels like creation because that's the first time it ever occurred to you. But the fact that it occurs to you isn't what creates it. Um, it a possibility is um, just a, a light that illuminates the existence of that world. So whenever, whenever you realize something is possible, you're realizing that there's a world in which it's happening. Um, so it's just infinite of these worlds. Well, not necessarily infinite, but huge. Well, but if 
Yeah, no, no, huge, huge, huge. Since numbers are infinite, would that mean that they're... No, only if you could fit an infinite number of raindrops into the world. Otherwise, it's just huge, but not infinite. Really huge. Gigantic. Tremendous. Humongous, even. But not infinite. Um, Grace and then Eliza. Well, it's, it would depend what you meant by creation, but um, we can be as creative as we are now. Um, that is, that to be aware that something is possible, look, you can deflate this if you want. You can say the fact that this is deflatable into the word possible, um, that tells you everything you really need to know. So if you come up, you know, if you say, oh man, I have this great idea of a society of unicorns, and isn't that beautiful? Um, yeah, it is beautiful, and um, its beauty is um, that you thought of it, um, and the it that you thought of, the fact that it exists elsewhere, its existence elsewhere isn't what made you think of it. You, you came to know that it existed elsewhere because you thought of it, and because what you thought of was something possible. Does that... Okay. Why? So, like, uh, one of the things I've been thinking about is, like, you brought up the pointers and, like, creation as well. Uh, I'm not sure if we were, like, if anyone's seen Prometheus, um, they're, like, looking for their creators. Mm -hmm. And they find out, like, that they also have human DNA and they might be humans, but, like, they still kind of treat them as their creators. But uh, it just—I just think like—and then also in relation to the simulations and who's in charge of like, like oh, like there's there's like someone out here that's controlling the simulation because, but they might be in a simulation because simulations are more likely than real worlds. But it, I just think that all just goes down to the idea of like what is like first, what is points to nothing, you know, like like where you can't go back any further, and like I feel like that's the more unstable concept. It's like. Like, what would make, if, if there are, if, if all that's true, it would just seem the, the weirdest thing is to, to have to be preceded by nothing. Mm -hmm. And that, 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 we keep running into that. Like, you can go back with the Big Bang, you're like, well, what was before the Big And then it's like, if, some, if you answer that, there's always the question then, well, what was, what was before that? Who created it? It's always like this following these pointers out. Yeah. And like, like the more, I, I don't know, it just seems like the, the very concept of like the pointer that goes to nowhere you know, is itself the more strange thing. It is. Than, it, than, than, than the idea that it will always go to something else. You know? Yeah, no, I agree. But, but, but uh, this was mainly just to, to introduce you to, to the Lewis idea of possible worlds. Yeah. Um, but then I, my last idea was then, what does this say about, like, I don't know, just like about ca like causality, which, which if, you, if you just can keep going back, if you can just keep pointing backwards, well, no. In other words, one po one possible answer to this question is to say that in fact the word possible is empty. Um, that um, we have this, we we do use the word possible, but it's not it's not true. Um, the only thing that is possible is the actual. Um, Aristotle defined the possible, and this is again, you should ask yourself whether this is a definition you agree with or not. But Aristotle defined possibility as what will eventually happen. If it won't ever, ever, ever happen, 
than it might have looked possible, but it wasn't. Um, so, you know, one possibility, but now I'm using possibility just as a, in, in a sloppy way. Um, one possibility is that the very idea of possibility is wrong. Um, that possibility just um, is a word indicating our ignorance as to whether something did, will, or is happening. In other words, you could say, um, for example, you could, um, uh, we use the word possible this way, that um, you find a coin in Syracuse, and um, the coin is um, reasonably near a grave, and you say, well, it's possible it was buried um, as a talisman with, um, with this dead person. Now, there's a, tr there's a fact of the matter. It either was or wasn't. We just don't know. So to say that it's possible that it was is just a confession of ignorance. Um, either it was, and then it necessarily was, definitely was, absolutely was, or it wasn't, and then it necessarily, definitely, absolutely wasn't. Um, so when we say it's possible that it was, all we're saying is we don't know. Um, and it might be that the word possible just is shorthand for saying we don't know, but not that it's possible in the sense of um, that it's true that it could have been buried with someone, or true, it's true simultaneously that it was buried with someone or that it wasn't, or that's, that somehow both of them, that it's possible that it could and that it couldn't have been buried with someone. So that's a way around it, um, but then you have to give up all notions of freedom or choice or um, anything except ignorance about a world which is completely stable and unchanging. Um, last word. Uh, in order for that framework to be true, there would, as back from last week, um, there would have to be a minimum unit of space and time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, Grace, and then let's go on to source code. Great. Oh, I got overextended. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know what your name is, but you were talking about, like, uh, yes. Yeah, as it does. Okay, yeah. Maybe you'd also have to say that in thinking about the origin of possible worlds, you'd have to say that there is a possible world in which possible worlds originated in a certain way. So it just wouldn't make sense that anything happened in the past. Yeah, that's, that's, a po that's a possible criticism of possible worlds, which is you could say, do possible worlds exist? Possibly. Which means that in some worlds they do, and in some they don't. And so what would make us think that our world is a world um, in which there are possible worlds that neighbor or parallel or are in some, um, some conceptual space as ours, because ours may be the world in which it's possible that possible worlds don't exist, and that's true too. Um, so there, so the point about, the point for Lewis and for um, other people who do modal logic is it gets really, really hard to, um, to get a, a formalized system for talking about possibility. But it's work that, they, that there's also huge progress on. Um, so you know, we're, we're just talking about this in, in terms of the most basic um, and approximate claim. Um, but the idea, and this is an idea, again, that um, gets raised in fiction, 
is, um, so what happens when you read about a fictional world? Now, not all fictional worlds are possible, um, but what really will make a fictional world um, impossible is if it's self-contradictory. Um, that's the, that's the um, gold standard for impossibility is self-contradiction. Um, and there are fictional worlds that are self-contradictory. Um, but if a fictional world is plausible, um, and the word plausible is actually, the word possible is um, a word that Aristotle uses um, as against the word probable. Um, probable for him means plausible. And um, plausible doesn't necessarily mean possible. So probable doesn't mean likely in Aristotle. It means plausible. That is, yeah, that, that probably could happen is what Aristotle means by the word probable. Um, but probable um, doesn't necessarily mean possible. But if it looks plausible, we'll at least take on board, consider, allow ourselves to regard something as possible. Now, many fictional worlds aren't, even though they seem plausible, they're not, but some are. But speaking of plausibility, then, um, in source code, um, and I, there, there is stuff still that I do want to say. Well, I, I actually want us to have a little bit of a conversation about the differences between source code and Groundhog Day. Um, but in source code, um, does the movie make entire sense by its own terms or not? Why not? It makes no sense? Okay. Like, I could not will myself to suspend the belief to make it make sense. Because the whole concept... So you didn't like it? You think you didn't like it? I liked everything except their explanation of how the conceit works. You mean the parabolic um, yeah. calculus? Quantum, whatever, yeah. Because, the Yeah, okay. If the whole idea is that they're capturing a recording of the last eight minutes. Yeah. So number one, that guy didn't experience any of the things that he's going to look at. Okay, quick parenthetical question. Did anyone time um, the so-called eight minutes? They're not. They're usually much shorter than eight minutes. Um, even the when they're continuous. Yeah, the Sorry? The last one's a lot longer, though. Yeah, the last one's a lot longer, <laughs> but um, generally they're shorter. Okay, go on. So, like, the guy never got off the train and went to the white van. Uh-huh. So... How can the recording from his brain allow him to get off the train and go to the white van? Okay, so does any quantum theorist want to defend that? What's that? Yeah, go ahead, Gwen, defend it. Was it was possible for him to get off the train, even though he did. So there was a realm in which he got off the train, and that's the realm that the protagonist is experiencing. I think is how Lewis would justify that. Okay, that's how Lewis would. Um, what about... Where are all the quantum theorists in this class? Darn. I know there's at least one. Um, maybe he's not here today. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say quick. Um, I, after you started bringing up quantum mechanics, I looked into those, and there's so many different ways you can interpret it. So, like, there's the, there's the more, there's, like, the multiple worlds, mm -hmm. which is, like, one. But then there's one where, like, you can send information back in time mm -hmm. that's actually, like, really predictive. And then there's another one where it's, like, a quantum computer and our issues with it are using classical, like, thinking to apply to, like, the fact that we're inside this, like, kind of a quantum computer. Mm -hmm. So, I don't, I don't know. It depends on which one you, which, which one you want. I still don't know enough about any of <laughs> Okay, so I think, 
obviously there's um, uh, there's a whole lot of the technical term is bullshit in the setup for the movie. Um, and as soon as Rutledge said, well, you wouldn't understand it. Try me. Okay, it's like a light bulb. Uh, got it. Um, that's the that's the touch the base where you wouldn't understand it. Oh, actually, I do understand it. It's science, and it makes sense to me. Oh, okay, then. Um, I've just popularized that science for you. So, obviously, there's a whole lot of bullshit. But there's a, re and the, there's a reason um, to bring up quantum theory as opposed to Lewisian possible worlds. He didn't say, well, it's as Princeton philosopher David Kellogg Lewis said when he was talking about uh, modal realism. Um, what he comes up with is this idea of quantum theory. But the idea, um, to the extent that it's justifiable by me, um, and I'm sure I can justify it a lot better than anyone who really knows anything about quantum theory, because they would just say, oh, give me a break. Um, but to the extent that it's justifiable by, by me, um, part of the idea in quantum theory is um, non-locality. That is, that, it's, that you can't simply say that something is someplace and not somewhere else. Things are, just to put it in the, in the most, um, in the crudest sense, things are mainly in one place rather than another, but mainly doesn't mean entirely. Um, and so, in fact, quantum theory, one of the impetuses to um, the beginning of quantum theory was when Rutherford was looking at scattering of um, particles that he was bombarding atoms with. And what was really weird about that scattering is that not only did it prove that atoms weren't um, simple lumps of stuff with electrons stuck into them, which was the old theory of atoms, that, you, that they were like, a, like there was the nucleus was like some clay, and then electrons were like pebbles or chocolate chips in the dough of that clay, um, but that in fact atoms were mainly empty space. But what really freaked Rutherford out was that sometimes atoms looked like their diameters were gigantic. Like, generally, we talk about the diameter of an atom, and it's tiny, tiny, tiny. But occasionally, it'll look gigantic. And the reason is that there isn't a strict limit to the diameter of an atom. Um, it's, there's the basic size of the atom, and then there are, are probabilities that, the, that any particular atom is bigger and bigger and bigger than that. Those probabilities fall off sharply, but never to zero, so that an atom can be um, can have its electron or the, the um, density of the probability function of the electron can go out to the edge of the universe with probability very, very close to zero, with infinitesimal probability, but still there. Um, and that's one reason that you get things that are called quantum entanglement, where something that I do here simultaneously affects something that's going on very, very far away, or at least seems connected to linked to something that goes on very far away. So if you just let your very vague and hazy notion of quantum theory be that all location in space is actually ha hazy and vague, um, then you can justify the movie by saying something like um, the fact that um, Sean was in the train car meant that he's affected by the environment most strongly by the things that are closest to him in the environment. But there are traces and trails and little bits of indication of things that are far away. They fall off rapidly, 
but there's a diameter of possibility of things that if you could look closely enough, you could um, know what was going on outside the train car, in the parking lots, um, on, on, um, uh, you know, in, in, on the bridges, in, in the water, whatever. Um, and so, do they have to justify it? No, it's a movie! Um, but the idea would be something like what we were talking about when we were talking in um, Maison about theater versus film, that quantum theory is actually a little bit more like film in the sense that the edge, the artificially drawn edges of location are not in fact limits the way they are in theater. In theater, when you go off stage, you're not in that world at all anymore. In film, when you go off screen, you're still in that world. And um, the drop-off is very rapid. That's our intuition of film. That is, um, if someone is off screen, we still think they're doing stuff, but we don't think they're at Alpha Centauri unless it's some science fiction movie. Um, if someone goes off stage, they're gone for good. So that just the, our, our um, metaphysics of film is a little bit closer to the kinds of claims quantum theory is making. And this movie in its um, you know, completely um, opportunistic way is, um, is capitalizing on that idea. Um, the idea of the parabolic calculus, which is what Rutledge says and what um, 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 Stephen um, responds to, um, is an idea of um, how to do calculus, how to do calculus without infinitesimals when you're talking about quantum theory. If you do it without infinitesimals, um, what that means is that there actually is actuality in different places, um, and there are no limits. Um, so, as I say, it's all it's all hazy and bullshit, but um, quantum theory always lets you do that, um, and that's why people like it so much. Since Star Trek on, um, that's why they like quantum theory so much. So let's just say in this world it is possible that there is a penumbra of um, knowledge that is in Sean's head at the moment that he dies, most of it inaccessible to him, but nevertheless he's quantumly affected by things that are 100 yards or 200 yards or 500 yards away, and therefore it's possible um, to get out beyond what he would know consciously or be consciously aware of. And that's one of the stipulations of the movie. Um, does it make sense then? Now can you suspend your disbelief? Yeah. Okay, good. Except for the ending. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Sam. Yeah, the ending. Like, if it had been successful, uh, if the source code had been successful, what would have happened to Sean, to Sean's mind, after Jake Gyllenhaal infiltrates his body and he's, is the actual Sean just, just gone? Sean <laughs> right? gone? Yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal just has to live Sean's life as a teacher. I mean... Right. Right. Yeah. But he, he doesn't. That's not like that's not his. Those aren't his experiences or his memories or his knowledge. Like right. he's just, he's still Colston, right? I mean, yeah. So in a way, what you're pointing out, um, which is true, is that among the things that frame movies are not only the frame on the screen, but their beginnings and endings, and um, there, um, I think you would probably feel. That the, that the same distinction between film and theater that you get spatially 
um, which is, uh, again, that there's nothing off stage in a theater, but there's plenty off screen in a movie. I think you might feel you get that temporally also. That is, that there's nothing after a play. Um, you don't think, oh, the play is over, but they're probably now um, going to go to New York and, um, and join Goldman Sachs and make lots of money and do all sorts of really good things with that money. No, they come back out on stage and they bow. Um, and it really is over. And the well-made play ends when it ends. Um, that's um, why, um, um, for Aristotle, the plot is a unity, and when the plot is over, it's over. Um, whereas in a movie, the kind of question you're raising, which is, so what do they do next? It's a beautiful day in Chicago. Isn't that nice? What will they do next? Well, the question is just that Sean, Sean would have lived in that if, if that scenario that happened, the actual Sean would have still been around. Yeah, okay, so I think that's a, that's that's a real, yeah. yeah, that's a real hole. Yeah. Um, the actual Sean would be around rather yeah. than, um, yeah, yeah, what happened to Sean? What happened to Sean? What happened to Sean? Good, so that's one question. Yeah? I was confused by how every time he was brought back to the train, there was that flash of memories or whatever, and then I remember that one of them was the, the orb. The, the, uh, the Anish Kapoor um, <laughs> sphere right, in sphere. Chicago. Have right. people seen that? I haven't. It's but, beautiful. Um, yeah, so like one of the things that he sees every time is that, and then at the end of the film, that's what they... There it is, and yeah. And he says, do you believe in fate? But it's like, do you... Is it that this has all happened already, and that's why he can remember it every time he goes back? But then how does that make sense? Yeah, it didn't make sense to me. Okay. <laughs> Did it make sense to anyone? To me, it seemed like cheating. Did it make sense to you, Gwen? Well, You're... just what we talked about today, how all the worlds exist simultaneously. Yeah. You kind of argued it like it's happening at the same time. Okay, yeah. So it's, it's, it, right. it's a little flash-forward action um, so, that, so that the future is also um, um, affecting the present. Um, and so maybe it's that. But it... To me, it actually feels like um, um, technical cheating in movie making, which is that we, fl we flash on those scenes earlier on in just super fast um, montages of, oh no, it's happening again and I'm dying. Um, and when we get to the end of the movie, we know we've seen it before and that it's significant somehow and it hasn't quite been explained, but there it is. Um, so it's, you know, it's a little bit like The Wizard of Oz comes in to um, the movie. So, you know, my, my suspicion is that it's, that it's cheating, and it cheats the way movies cheat, although less and less in the age of DVDs and um, of movies on demand, um, which is that the history of movies, like the history of plays, and not like the history of novels, is a history of people not being able to check. And so movies and plays can cheat because, and the, the movie, this movie thematizes this question in, in, the, in the question of short-term memory, because stuff that happened half an hour earlier in a movie or a play is stuff that we don't really remember clearly. Um, and we can be reminded of it without um, having to be reminded of it accurately. Um, a typical example of this, you know, just a trivial but typical example, is that frequently characters will know each other's names without being introduced. 
and um, you know, if you say, wait a second, how did they find out each other's names? What scene did that happen in? And you go back and go back and go back. It didn't. Um, but at some point, we know their names, and now they're talking, and they know each other's names. And we may have seen them the whole time. Um, they know their names, but we don't remember that there wasn't a moment where they weren't introduced. Those are their names, and they know each other's names. It makes sense. So that is just part of um, the craft of play and movie making, which is um, an editor or a director or a writer will have a sense of what's still in an audience's short-term memory and what isn't. And what isn't in short-term memory is stuff that you can mess around with. You can claim that stuff has happened that hasn't. You can, I mean, you can't do major things that have happened that, that haven't. But, so the thing about the, um, I think about the Anish Kapoor sphere and all that stuff that happens in Chicago is, oh yeah, that, that, I saw that before. And there it is. Wow, that's so great. Um, now, I don't think it real, that part really worked so much, um, partly because it's a, it's a famous icon. And um, if you, what, the first time you see it, you say, oh, cool, Chicago, which is where they're going, rather than, um, oh, that's strange, I wonder what it is. Um, but if it were rather that strange, I wonder what it is, and then there it was, it would feel more quantum mystical, let's say, rather than not making sense in terms of the movie. So, so my answer to that is I think it's cheating, but maybe it isn't. Um, other issues? I think the question, what happens to the real Sean, that's a serious one. Yeah, Megan. Like, even if you don't have a problem with them on a technical level, like, even if you can find some way in which they did not cheat, even though it was a closed possible world in which they did not cheat, um, like, did, did it strike anyone else as just lazy? That, like, at the end of, like, something that is supposedly a pretty well thought out, like, like even if we found some flaws with it, they did spend a little bit making this movie and a couple bucks making this movie. Like, they probably thought it out decently hard. That then at the end, they just kind of throw their hands up, and they're like, determinism, oh well. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It seemed, it seemed like kind of the ending. But I, I don't know. I'd be interested to, like, talk to whoever, like, actually wrote the film. Yeah. And see if, like, this was one of the cases where any, like, writer, director, yeah. Because I can't imagine other ending being more possible than, I don't know, some of the things they did when it came to the deterministic change there. Yeah. Yeah. I think that doing that, like, that felt to me, just because after, like, he dies and stuff, I was like, oh, that's sad. Like, I, everybody always wants, I feel like, in watching a movie, like, oh, if they set up a love story, you want them to end up together or yeah. something. So I feel like putting that world in was just like a quick way of them giving the audience their happy little ending, even though it didn't really make sense. And they knew it didn't really make sense yeah. that much, but they kind of just wanted that because it would appease the audience. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's clear that they gave you a possible ending, which is um, Source's Code's version of the bullet time special effect, which is, um, I mean, it's a <laughs> much less... Uh, um, CGI version, but um, which is that they kiss, it's now time, and then they freeze. And you get the camera tracking back um, over people who are frozen in time. Um, and that is obviously the way the movie, the way we have the movie, it's a false ending. Um, but it's a false ending because it's so obviously a way to end it. 
That is, instead of the explosion, instead of um, some kind of violent death, there's this eternal moment. Um, and that, I think, would have been a satisfying ending for artsy types, um, like you all and me. Um, but you can also see the studio saying, no way. Um, you don't have these two actors in a love story who finally realize they love each other, and it's all going, it's all going well, and it's all good, and oh well, um, that's how it ends. You know, the end of The Sopranos is maybe like that. Um, even um, the end of Inception is maybe like that. But people don't like that many movies that end in an <coughs> indeterminate state, um, and there would be something indeterminate. So you could you could imagine lots of story um, arguments about that moment. Um, this is sort of a side note. This is the second time I've been assigned this movie at Rennes class. The first time was uh, in a class called Genre Films, which was about why the why adhering to conventions in film is important. Yeah. Uh, to make it popular, you will have a general general public. Yeah. Um, and it was. Uh, it, it was assigned as a demonstration of uh, when pr producers and writers collaborate really well to in, use the to use the genre. Yeah, use the genre and use the tropes and everything yeah. else. Yeah. Uh, really effectively. Yeah. Maybe compromising philosophical integrity. Yeah. Um, well, one. I mean, there's a. To talk about genre, one interesting thing about um, how genre works in movies, and I think um, something uh, that this movie also does interestingly, is that um, a lot of what a movie has to do, and especially has to do in its first 10 minutes, um, because the first 10 minutes are where um, almost all the setup has to occur. One of the interesting things about Groundhog Day is not everything does happen in the first 10 minutes. But generally, setups have to occur in the first 10 minutes because that's when the audience is maximally open to learning about the world um, and the rules of the world that it's watching. Um, and so those rules tend to be given to you in the first 10 minutes. Um, and um, generally, the way you tell a story is you tell an audience what the rules of the world that this story is taking place in are. So that um, you know the famous um, complaint about um, ending, um, coming up with a happy ending because of a Deus ex machina is so. Here's this world in which things are going and they're hard and they're difficult and people get trapped and they find really ways of scrabbling out of their traps and so on. But now here's a trap they can't come out of. Oh, but look, a god has come down from the sky to save them, and there've been no gods in the movie until then. So how does that happen? That's violating the rules, and that's a terrible thing to do. Now, if you have gods at the very beginning of a movie, then it's fine. Then it's not violating the rules. If they're transporter beams in the first 10 minutes, then someone can be beamed up out of danger in the last 10 minutes. But you can't just suddenly have the Enterprise coming in um, and saving Humphrey Bogart um, at, the end, at the end of um, um, The Big Sleep, um, because that's the rules have already been established. And genre is a very, very quick way of establishing a whole multitude of rules. If you um, indicate the genre the movie is in, then the audience knows 
a whole lot of the rules of that movie. Not necessarily all of them, but a whole lot of the rules of the movie world. Um, one of the things that this movie does is it doesn't um, tell you the rule about whether death is inevitable in those circumstances. It hints that it isn't, but it also hints that it is. It hints that it isn't when he gets her, when he gets Christina off the train and she watches him get killed um, by being hit by an oncoming train. Yes, he has to die at the same time as he would die anyhow, but she lived. At least he thinks she lived. That's what he claims to Dr. Goodwin when he, could, when he gets back, or to Captain Goodwin when he gets back. And so there's a hint that maybe the rule that you have to die when those eight minutes are up is um, not a hard and fast rule, but that's ambiguous. It could also be that, um, no, you do um, have to die after those eight minutes are up, and he dies, and therefore she disappears. Um, the same thing happens at the end, at least of some versions of Blade Runner, which is the rule is that, um, that Rachel has to die after four years, but then at the last moment, um, Deckard can say, oh, but I knew something that Gaff didn't know, which is that she didn't have a four-year lifespan program did. Yeah. So doesn't that contradict itself, the fact that she was alive at that end of those eight minutes, but it didn't affect the future? Right. But then the last one, it somehow does affect the future. Yeah. Okay. Yes, it does. It does contradict itself. Now, there's also the occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, or um, Jacob's Ladder way of reading the possibilities here, which I'm not going to spoil for you if there's anyone in the world left who doesn't know what happens then. Um, but that's another possible way of reading it. It's also the Pincher, Pincher Martin um, by William um, Golding, who also wrote Lord of the Flies, is another version of that. Um, so there, there are manifold possibilities. Um, okay, well, we have about eight minutes left. And what I actually did want to talk about a little bit is um, not lumping but splitting the differences between source code and um, uh, Groundhog Day. The similarities are, um, let's start off with a similarity, which is that the main character, the one who experiences the repetition as repetition, um, that is, uh, one similarity between the movies is that a whole lot of them are about the fact that whenever you make a movie, there are multiple takes. And one huge and tremendously important skill for a movie actor, also for a stage actor, is to be able to repeat the same moments over and over and over again, to look surprised the 15th time that a scene is shot. Um, to look happy, to look relaxed, to look relieved. All of those things, um, things that pretty much anyone, by virtue of being a human being, can do um, for a single take. You know, everyone is a decent actor, and everyone can do it once or twice. It's going through the same routine the 15th time that will really um, distinguish good actors from non-actors. And um, both movies are clearly about are clearly about thematizing that very thing, that we're watching the actors as well as the characters 
redoing scene after scene after scene. One interesting thing to do when watching both those movies is to try to determine if there are any moments at all where the same footage is used more than once. And um, as far as I can tell, there aren't. Um, it would be an easy thing to do, but it's actually more interesting that, that they don't reuse footage. Um, that is, that um, when Bill Murray steps in the puddle, it's always a new step in the puddle. Now, it's also easy to have new steps in the puddle because every scene is shot three or four times at least, so they have lots of scenes of him stepping into the puddle. It's not like they said, okay, this is number two step in the puddle, so we'll shoot that four times. Um, they already have a couple of shots of him stepping into the puddle. But so what we're watching, one of the things we're watching is what people are doing who are pretending as actors that this is the first time this is happening to them versus what the mains are doing, what um, Stephen and what um, um, Phil are doing, when they know they're doing it not for the first time, and they're doing it against and um, in the background of people who are acting as though this is the first time they're having this experience over and over and over again. Um, so it's partly, both those movies are partly movies about acting, um, partly movies about the, rep the repetitiousness of acting. Um, and that is actually fascinating. It's part of the fascination of watching it, is watching um, Annie McDowell looking um, as knowing no more about film, about Phil, um, an hour into the movie than she did ten minutes into the movie. Um, and having her still be as surprised or as um, perturbed or as interested or whatever, um, there's a constant freshness on her part. Um, so that's something similar between the two movies. But where are the differences? Are there differences? Are they the same movie? Yeah, Gwen. For Stephen, there's the knowledge of when the repetition will end, but for Bill Murray, it's just kind of this track with no scene deadline. Okay, so um, you mean you mean every instance with the with the, we always know that there's going to be the explosion and that that's the end of the eight minutes. Right. Whereas with Bill Murray, all we know is it's going to peter out. The day will peter out in one way or another. Um, and we may get it as a montage, but it'll peter out, and then we'll always get the beginning. will be 6 a.m., but not the end of this. Okay. Other characters, too. Like, Stevens knows if he completes the mission, then he's done. Mm -hmm. um, but Bill Murray, no matter what he does, it's never done. Okay, nice. Until something is. Good, good. Yeah. So, um, and his happy ending is probably in some ways even more... Um, unmotivated um, than the happy ending in source code. Um, that is unmotivated by the structure of the rules of, of those worlds. Yeah, yeah. In source code, there's a non-repeating world. Um, right, outside of the repeating world. Um, although at the very end, maybe that turns out not to be true. Yeah. Um, but generally, yeah, a non-repeating world. Um, yeah, Sam. Uh, although they ask like variations of the same question, what would you do if you only had one day to live? There's like a lot of urgency in source code. Yeah. Of that like it's just 
this is all you have for us from Graph High Day. It's like, what would you do if you had really infinite Right. Yeah. What would you do if you could have this same day over and over yeah. and over again? Yeah. Versus what would you do if it's the last minute of your life, pure and simple? Yeah. Good. And I mean, like, also because of, like, the realm that he's in, like, all of, like, the, 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 the potential variation is so much less, you know, because you're stuck. Like, even if he does get out of it, like, most of his repetitions exist in this very short thing where you can focus on every little detail, whereas obviously with Groundhog Day, you can, you can, the world is so much larger for you to explore, apparently, at least at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a much more restricted set, even, yeah. we could say, that, um... And it's also much more artificial. That is, this, this, the, the intentional studio feel yeah. of source code is part of the point. Yeah, great. Okay, good. We'll pick this up. I just want to suggest one other um, place to look for um, for juxtaposition and therefore slight difference or significant difference is both movies are about um, repeated deaths. Um, in both movies, the main characters get killed over and over and over again, and also so do other characters die over and over and over again. Part of the repetition is a repetition of deaths. But their attitude towards those repeated deaths um, are interestingly different. Um, so let's start with that on Tuesday. Um, do people want, I can also put up, if you want, Lewis's original um, article about possible worlds. Uh, you don't have to read it, but if you're interested in reading it, where it just says, I hold that they actually really exist. Um, I'll put it up for you. Okay, so um, the one you should, you definitely should read for Tuesday is the one called Truth and Fiction. Um, the other one, which is called Possible Worlds, uh, is optional.